Second, you're a friendly congregation. And uh, I really appreciate that. Everybody's been so friendly. I hope it's not just because I'm speaking, but you've been really friendly to me, and it appears that you're friendly to each other. I don't care what the Baptists say about you. You are a friendly people, okay? It is good to see uh, Richard Garenswald and Andy and Jill McGaffigan. Um, Andy McGaffigan, right after he retired from pro baseball, uh, helped the Alexander Christian Foundation a Christian church organization in the state of Florida to raise thousands of dollars um, to fund scholarships for deserving young people going to a Christian college in our movement to train for a ministry vocation. So we got to know Andy back in the 90s. It's also good to see Bob and Joan Higgins. I have more to say about Bob in another sermon. Mike... Seja, I'm not sure whether that's the right pronunciation. Is it Seja or Seja, the student minister? Does anybody know? Mike. Okay, thank you, Mike. Mike was on our, when he was in college, uh, and he just graduated, I, I believe, uh, he was our third baseman on our church softball team in Kissimmee. So it's good to see um, uh, Mike and uh, all of you. Uh, I came to Kissimmee. Florida in 1981 and spent 30 years as a preacher. And you probably know maybe a little bit about Kissimmee. It's a place of cows and cowboys and rodeos and rednecks. And when I got there in 1981, it was even worse uh, than it is now. Uh, in fact, uh, they, we took up the offering with hubcaps. Now, that's, that's a pretty redneck thing to do. Uh, at the church. One Sunday early on in my ministry, I said, Bubba, we need some help with the offering. And three men and two women stood up to help us with the offering that day. I knew it was time to retire after 30 years. We had a men's restroom that had a real special uh, fixture to blow your hands dry. You would push a button and the hot air would come out and the hot air would dry your hands. But somebody had put a sign on that hot air blower that said, for a brief message from our minister, please press here. And I thought that was just too much, so I retired. There's a plaque on a church building in England that reads, In the year 1653, when all things sacred throughout the land were either demolished or profaned, Sir Robert Shirley built this church, whose singular praise is this, to have done the best of things in the worst of times. Now, 17th century England was pretty bad. It was the worst of times. Charles I, the king, had been accused of treason. He was beheaded. Injustice was reigning. Anglican churches were closing. Presbyterian churches were being harassed. These were horrible times. But Sir Robert Shirley took the talent that God had given him and he built a church. He did the best of things in the worst of times. Now you know, as well as I, we also live in the worst of times. You can't turn the television on or to the news, or just about any place else, 
on the TV or open a newspaper without realizing how terrible things are. And we probably don't need to recite them, do we? Some of you may be, somebody here, may be old enough to remember Pearl Harbor. Pretty bad. Columbine. We remember that, most of us. 9-11. More recently, we know the tragedies by location. Las Vegas Music Festival, 58 killed. Pulse Nightclub, 49 killed. Virginia Tech, 32. Sandy Hook Elementary, 26. Sutherland Springs, a Baptist church, 26 killed. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, 17 killed. This summer, El Paso, Dayton, Ohio. The world at its worst needs the church at its best. These are horrible times. Police are under attack, aren't they? Police, can you believe it? Islamic fundamentalists threatening freedom and justice. Many people profess faith, but there is little difference in the way Christians live. On and on we could go lamenting things as they are in this broken, fallen world. But let us not forget, the Bible says, where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. The Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The Bible said, says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The Bible says we are more than conquerors through Jesus. When the world is at its worst, it's a great time for the church to be at its best. What a day this is to preach the gospel. What a day this is to call young men and women into ministry. What a day this is for the Holy Spirit to be unleashed in the world. Today I want you to turn to your Bibles to Acts the fourth chapter And we're going to be in verses 31 through 37 of this passage of Scripture. Some of the Scriptures are going to be on the screen if you'd like to follow along. There's a bulletin on uh, hopefully on your lap or someplace where you can get to it with some fill-in-the-blanks. But in Acts, the fourth chapter, verse 31 through 37, we see a picture of the church at its best. The gospel was being preached. Lives were being changed. A pagan And hostile culture was being confronted. Persecution was mounting. And the church was exploding in growth. After being threatened and held in jail overnight, Peter and John returned to the church to report what had happened. And after that report, a prayer meeting ensued. And after that prayer meeting, their prayer was so bold... Their praying was so fervent that God shook the house where they were meeting. Rather than growing discouraged, the church exploded in ministry. And these verses give us a glimpse of the church at its best. Five characteristics. By the way, the first three are at the top of your outline. The last two are at the very bottom. So there's some little lettering confusion here. But first of all, the world at its worst needs the church at its best praying fervently. Verse 31 says, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. 
Verse 24 through 30 of this chapter records the longest prayer in the book of Acts. And it ends with God's seal of approval. He shook the house where they were meeting. Now these early Christians did not pray to have their circumstances changed. Or their enemies driven out of office. They did not pray even for protection. They asked for power to preach the gospel. Now, a lot of churches can be called houses of programming, houses of activity, houses of religious services, houses of board meetings and committee meetings. But may God haste the day when more and more of our churches are called houses of prayer. Far too often, prayer is a last resort rather than a first response. And the church possesses one thing that the world does not, and that is the power of prayer. When we pray, we're praying to a God who can do anything. When we pray, we're praying to a God who can do the impossible. And the church possesses that the world does not. Can a person who is not a Christian, let me just ask you, can a person who is not a Christian expect God to answer their prayer? After all, we're to pray in Jesus' name. If a person is not a Christian, he cannot call on the name of Jesus to intercede on that prayer. So the church has one thing that the world does not have, and that is the power of prayer. A church in Phoenix, Arizona discovered that. The minister asked members to randomly choose 80 names from the Phoenix phone book and he requested daily prayer for 90 days for those 80 families that had been chosen. He asked another group to choose a different 80 names from the phone book. But those names were put aside. They were not prayed for. Nobody prayed for them. After 90 days, the members called all 160. The 80 families prayed for and the 80 families not prayed for. And asked one question. Would you allow Christians to come and visit with you and pray for you? The result was that only one person on the not prayed for list would allow a visit. But 69 of the 80 on the prayed-for list would allow a visit. And 45 of the 80 even invited them into their house, gave them coffee, gave them prayer requests. We've experienced the power of prayer ourselves. In 1981, when we came to Florida, we were childless. I was 30, my wife was 28. We had prayed for God to bless us with A baby, but every year, every Mother's Day, every Father's Day, those were lonely days. Every Christmas, every Thanksgiving, those were lonely days. We'd been on an adoption list in Indiana for two years, but we answered the call of the church in Kissimmee and came to Florida to minister. And you know what happens when you're on an adoption list in one state? They don't put you on the fast track when you move to another state. 
we went to the bottom of the adoption list. But two years later, we adopted a little baby. He weighed three pounds when he was born, four pounds a month later when we got him. We named him Sam, which means asked of God. We gave him back to God. And he's now a preacher in the state of Florida up in Lake County at Tavares Adventure Christian Church seeking to restore a church that's needing some help. About a year after that, we started praying for God to bless us again. And this time, my wife got pregnant. And then a year later, Katie was born. She grew up, she became a nurse, and she's now working at Advent Health as a nurse manager in the emergency department. About a year after that, we asked God to bless us again, and my wife got pregnant, and a year later, Abby was born. She grew up, and she became a school teacher. A year later, we began to pray for God to bless us again. My wife got pregnant, and this time, a year later, Julie was born. She grew up, and she became a school teacher, too. It was about this time that we prayed for God to stop blessing us so much. (laughs) The world at its worst needs to have the church at its best praying fervently. Second, the world at its worst needs the church at its best filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, the Holy Spirit did not retire at the end of the book of Acts. He is alive and well and empowering the body of Christ today. When the Holy Spirit is at work, his fruit is evident. That fruit is described in Galatians, the fifth chapter, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Verse 33 of this text says, much grace was upon them all. Now that is the touch of the Holy Spirit in the church. It's what transforms the church into an amazing grace place. A preacher in Tennessee said that his dad, his dad, was not a Christian when he was growing up. He said everybody else in the family went to church, but he said his dad never would go with them. When the preacher would come by for a visit, his dad would have one standard answer. I know what you want. You want another name. You want another pledge. You don't care about me. Well, toward the end of his life, the dad got throat cancer. He had surgery. He couldn't talk. But the hospital room was full of flowers, mostly from people at the church. Cards came. Almost all from people at the church. Food came to the house from people at the church. People came and visited and prayed from the church. And one day, though his dad couldn't talk, he scribbled on a pad words from Shakespeare's Hamlet. In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. And the son said, Dad, what is your story? And the father scribbled, I was wrong. I was wrong about the church. 
And his dad became a Christian before he died because of the love and fellowship of the church. The world at its worst needs the church at its best enjoying unity. Verse 32 says, All the believers were of one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, in days past and even current day, some people draw a straight line between the early church practice here and communism. They seek to legitimize communism. But there are three distinct differences between what the early church practiced, what we practice or should practice, and communism. Number one, the early church, it was voluntary, not obligatory. Number two, it was an attempt to meet people's needs, not to redistribute wealth. And number three, it was initiated by the church and not the state. Those are three important differences. Philippians, the second chapter, verse 2 says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Or consider Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Paul writes, Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Please notice, unity takes effort. Unity does not just happen in the church. Unity takes effort. The Apostle Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. David Faust, a really excellent speaker, at one of our conventions told of a church in West Virginia that divided. But both factions of the church were so poor that neither of the two factions could move out. They couldn't afford to move. And so both of the factions continued to meet in the church building. But during the winter, they had two coal piles from which to heat the building when their particular church was using it. And someone scrawled on the the coal pile storage building these words. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and two coal piles. You know, young people today don't even know what a coal pile is. And while we argue about immaterial things, the world is going to hell. And young people are being confused. Because sometimes we elevate things of little importance to be so important that we fight over it. Now, here are some practical ways that we can encourage unity in the church. Number one, let the Holy Spirit lead. The Holy Spirit will not lead to division. If you are a part of some divisive entity in the local church, the Holy Spirit did not lead you there. 
The Bible is a product of the Holy Spirit. And if you are divisive, the Bible did not lead you there. And if you follow this book and cultivate the fruit that we talked about just a few minutes ago, it will not lead to division. Number two, mend your fences. Mend your fences. One of the reasons why I lasted 30 years in one church was because early on I learned that sometimes I needed to apologize. You know, an apology doesn't cost you anything. It's free. It doesn't cost a thing. Number three, put others first. Philippians, the second chapter, verse 3 says, In humility, consider others better than yourself. Isn't that an interesting verse? In humility, consider others better than yourself. A preacher retired and moved to the country where he could enjoy a quiet life and, and uh, yard work and a garden. Needing a lawnmower, he headed to town to buy one. And on the way, he saw in the front yard of a house a sign that said, Lawnmower for Sale. So he pulled into the driveway, went up to the door, he knocked on the door, and a young boy greeted him. The preacher asked about the lawnmower, and the boy said it was out behind the house. They went behind the house, and after looking the lawnmower over, the preacher realized it was not in real good shape, but it probably would get the job done. And they settled on $25. Later that day, the young boy was out riding his bicycle, and he spied the preacher pulling on that engine starter rope on the lawnmower. And you know, they used to have those uh, starter ropes on the lawnmowers. And he stopped and he watched the old preacher pulling on that starter rope. And finally, the preacher said, I just can't get this mower started. Do you know how? Yep, the boy said, you have to cuss at it. Well, the preacher rose up indignantly and he said, now you listen to me. I'm a preacher and if I ever did cuss, I've certainly forgotten how to do it after all these years. With a wise look on his face, the boy looked up and said, Preacher, you keep pulling on that rope, it'll all come back to you. (laughs) You know, over time, over time, it is possible for those of us who have been a part of the church for very long, and more and more of our friends are part of the church, and fewer and fewer of our friends are out in the world, It's possible for us to forget what others are struggling with. That we we just forget. And we need to remember. Put others first. Put others first. Number four, be willing to change. Be willing to change. Now these two points are hidden someplace in your outline, in your bulletin. But the majority of churches in America are plateaued or dying for one of two reasons. Number one, because they change what they should never change. They change the Bible. They change doctrine. They compromise truth. 
they dilute the message, the true message of the gospel. And so, because that message is robbed of its content, the church declines. Because they change what they should never change. But number two, churches die because they refuse to change what they are free to change. They they refuse to change what they are free to change. We should not change the truth. We should not change the gospel. But some of the things that we think are gospel are not gospel, okay? There are some things that we elevate. We think, oh, this is very, very important. It's not gospel. Because they refuse to change what they are free to change. Never change the truth, but always change the methods. I had heart surgery last month, and I am glad that they are not doing heart surgery like they did 20 years ago. You know? Surgeries change. For all these things that you're glad change, you got to understand, we in the church have to change too. Number five, focus on the big picture. The church is bigger than me. The church is bigger than my small group. The church is bigger than my interests. The church is bigger than my opinions. The church is bigger than my preferences, my program. And number six, guard your attitude. Guard your attitude. Your position may be right, but what about your disposition? I've never had to apologize for my position, but I've had to apologize for my disposition. I heard about a woman who went into a hardware store, and she criticized every item on the shelf. She came to some brand-new brooms, and she said, those brooms will never hold up. Their structure is so unstable. The straw is not dependable. The handle is rough. I don't know what purpose those brooms could possibly serve. And the sales clerk said, well, ma'am, why don't you take one and ride it home and see? (laughs) You know, you may get attention being critical and negative and complaining, but in the end, the only one that you hurt is you. The world at its worst needs the church at its best, giving generously. Look again at chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And then, verse 34, there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. The world at its worst needs the church at its best to be known for their generosity. Rick Warren from the Saddleback Church in Southern California says, Sometimes I have people walk up to me and say, Rick, I'm telling you, I tell you, I'm just not making it. I've got the spiritual blahs. 
I am not growing in my Christian walk. I am wandering. I feel like something is missing. And Rick Warren said, one of the first things I tell them is to check out their checkbook. He said, you see, no matter what a person says is important to them, you can tell what is really important by looking at, number one, their schedule, and number two, their checkbook. The way I spend my time and the way I spend my money tell people what's going on in my life, what my priorities really are. Inconsistent inconsistent giving produces inconsistent living. But generosity opens our lives and hearts to the blessing of God. And generosity empowers the church to carry out its mission. It's been estimated if all the members of the church tithed the ministry potential of the people of the church would increase by 400%. Begin, what can happen? Thinking, what can happen as more and more people catch the vision of Christian giving as modeled by the church in the book of Acts? The world at its worst needs the church at its best preaching Jesus. Look at verse 33. The Bible says, With great power... The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. You see, the real key, the real key to the church at its best is lifting up and preaching Jesus. Jesus was exalted. Peter reminded us of that in Acts 4 verse 12. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Lives were changed and the church exploded in growth. In Acts the 5th chapter, verse 14, it's described this way. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Or consider Acts 5, verse 42. Day after day. In the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. A chapter later, in Acts 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples increased rapidly. The King James Bible says multiplied. God stopped adding and started multiplying. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The world at its worst needs the church at its best, praying fervently, filled with the Holy Spirit, enjoying unity, giving generously, and preaching Jesus. Charles Swindoll tells of a new minister at a church. And his first Sunday... There was a small crowd, and most all of them sat near the back of the church. And he said, you know what? If you won't come to me, I'm going to come to you. So when it came time to preach, he picked up his podium, and he marched that podium right up the center aisle to where all the people were in the back of the church. And he preached. And he preached love. 
He preached the Bible. He preached truth. And as the church grew, he was forced every week to move that podium closer and closer and closer to the front as the church filled with people. In time, he answered a call to another church. And another preacher was called. But this preacher was negative and narrow-minded. And with his negative harangue, he systematically emptied that same church. He didn't do it, but he could have taken that podium right up the center aisle as people left in droves. In one of his books, Max Lucado tells of a friend of his who cared for some of the victims of Hurricane Katrina. Remember Hurricane Katrina a few years ago. So being a physician, this doctor gave of his time and talent to minister to some of the 12,500 evacuees who found their way from New Orleans all the way to San Antonio, Texas. One survivor told him a riveting story. As the waters surrounded his house and grew, this New Orleanian swam out his upstairs window with two children clinging to his back. This man found safe refuge on the tallest building in the neighborhood, and soon others joined him on that roof in a small circle of people gathered together for what would be their home for the next three days while they waited to be rescued. After about an hour on that building, the man realized he was on top of a church building. So he patted the rooftop and he announced to the others, we are on holy ground. His news jogged the memory of another roof dweller and she looked around at the area And then she crawled over to the steeple and proclaimed, My grandmother and grandfather helped build this church. Do you think those grandparents ever imagined that their church would be used to save their granddaughter? Oh, they probably surely prayed that God would use the building to save souls. But they could never have imagined that God would use that building to save their grandchild during a hurricane. They had no idea how God would use the work of their hands. Nor do you know how God is going to use this church, your people, the elders, an exciting new minister, who comes to serve with you to save people in this community, to minister to the hurting, to reach out to those who are down and to bring them in and to be the kind of church you are, but better. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to worship you We thank you for the praise that we have been led in today by this excellent praise team. We're thankful for the quality that we see around us in this place that tells us that 
the people of this church truly care about what the facilities look like and what this church does and the excellence that it pursues. But Lord, we come before you today to confess to you that we need your help for every step that we take and every day that we live. So we're here today to pray for you to bless us this week, for you to bring us to places and opportunities where we can lift up Jesus, where we can touch others' lives, where we can say something positive and help someone who's doubting and down. To that end, we offer our lives in this place for this week's ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.